research on what drives mass shooters and why blaming mental illness is problematic. The broader kind of question of, well, what is motivating a shooter has to come down to more than just mental illness. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Immigrant detainees strike over working conditions. Now the state is investigating. Private prison companies have often used punishment to actually force people to perform this labor. Doing things like threatening and putting people into solitary confinement, denying food. Find out what's happening for the Barrio Art Crawl and more in your weekend preview. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. Today, Japan is in mourning after the assassination of its former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe after a rare shooting in that country. Meanwhile, the United States remains on edge after its latest high-profile mass shooting on July 4th in Highland Park, Illinois, which resulted in the killing of seven people, leaving many more injured. Stories like these beg the question, what are the motivations for these acts of violence? And what can be learned by looking into the root causes behind those that commit them? Here to talk more about this is Tage Rye, Assistant Professor of Management at UC San Diego's Rady School of Management and co-author of the book Virtuous Violence. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me. So you recently spoke with the San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins, and in the article you questioned the often immediate labeling of mass shooters as mentally ill. Why do you think that's a concern? So first, we know that a very low percentage of uh, shootings in general and also mass shootings are committed by people uh, with diagnosable mental illness. So if we pursue policies that are really focused on that, one, they might not necessarily be effective. And two, what we know is they're just going to stigmatize people who are seeking mental health services. And your research into the causes of violence suggests there's often a deeper motivation for the perpetrators. Tell us more about that. I think part of the reason that we have this automatic reaction to say, well, a person must be mentally ill to do this is on some level it's kind of comforting to think that well no sort of rational sane person would go out and kill a bunch of strangers as opposed to kind of trying to think through the possibility that actually there are people out there who have values and commitments that are going to drive them to this kind of action but what we find when we look at violence across the world not just mass shootings but all sorts of violence all sorts of killings homicides and everything else is that most of the time when people hurt another human being, 
they're doing so because they think they have an obligation to do it. They think it's the right thing to do. They think that their social communities are going to praise them for it. And in a lot of cases, their particular communities will. So in the case of this shooter, the community we need to be thinking about is not necessarily uh, you or I. It's the kind of online right-wing extremist communities that he was floating in. Is that the same thinking behind terrorists, for example? I think this is a really good question and gets to part of your introduction to the segment, which is that an assassination of Shinzo Abe is very different from a shooter going to a July 4th parade, which is very different from the other gun violence that happened in Chicago that same weekend. We have to kind of tackle these things using kind of different approaches. But I do think the broader kind of question of, well, what is motivating a shooter has to come down to more than just mental illness. It's going to be something where people are seeking meaning through their actions. They're driven by ideological leanings. They're driven to do what they in their minds and what their social communities tell them is the right thing to do. And here in the U.S. specifically, uh, we've seen mass shootings and other acts of violence driven by white supremacy, often by young white men, haven't we? I think that's exactly right. So particularly in the American context, what we're seeing is young white men driven by misogyny, driven by racism, driven by white supremacy, seeking a way to gain meaning through violence. And so when those things come together, then you get the kinds of shootings that we've seen, not just in Chicago, but elsewhere. Did your research find any potential tools to counteract these ideological ties uh, that you say can lead to some someone committing violence? When we're looking at something like mass shootings or just gun violence in particular, the approaches you want to take are sort of both kind of narrow and broad. On the broader level, we're really talking about changing these kinds of cultures that are feeding misogyny and racism and white supremacy to these uh, young shooters. And that's, that's a kind of you know, bigger endeavor that involves breaking into these sort of online communities and changing the messaging and changing what people believe is, is right in these places. Your research found that social pressure may be a key piece to combating these motivations. Can you tell us more about what your research experiments found there? In some of our experiments, what we found is that people who commit harm really care about whether they are signaling that they are committing harm for what they believe their community thinks are the right reasons. And if they think they will be seen as committing harm for the wrong reasons, then they don't want to do it anymore. Or if they think that their communities won't approve of their violent actions, then they're not going to want to do it as much anymore. And so really trying to communicate to people that 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 violence is not going to be acceptable is going to be key. And that means actually making it not acceptable within those communities. When we've seen successful community interventions, oftentimes it's been the case where people who are prone to violence are confronted by people in their community who are expressing them that they don't approve of what's going on. And that really does have an effect. What do you think the criminal justice system can take away from your research? I think what we've seen from, you know, my experiments, my research and other people's is that uh, it's not going to be material incentives alone. So it's not going to be just punishments and jail time and fines or anything else. 
it's going to be a combination of material incentives and social incentives that people need to leverage peer pressure from their communities and change those actual social and cultural norms. And that's what's really going to have a big effect. Material incentives on their own just aren't disincentivizing to someone who believes that they're hurting others because it's the right thing to do in their minds. Mm. And, you know, ultimately, you say that understanding what draws people to violence is really key to preventing it. Absolutely. I think that if you want to prevent violence, then the first key is understanding the motives that underlie it. And oftentimes, I think people are proceeding from an incorrect view that, well, if someone is being violent, it must be because something is sort of broken in their psychology, they're mentally ill, or they are just sort of seeking out some material incentives, or they're failing to empathize with their victims as human beings or something like that. When we need to confront the possibility that actually a lot of their violence isn't driven by a kind of absence of morality in their minds, it's actually driven by a presence of moralistic and ideological motivation that makes them feel that killing is something they have to do, something they need to do, and something that will be seen later on as righteous in their communities. Can you touch on the role race plays in that narrative you just laid out? I think in the American context, especially in the right-wing extremist context, especially, what we're seeing are a number of violent offenders, killers, shooters, who believe that the white race, that men are under attack and that they are under threat from women and minorities and that they need to take action. And that's why they're, they're doing what they're doing. And also in the way that we, that we label shooters or people who commit these acts of violence to, oftentimes the only people who are labeled as mentally ill when these types of, of uh, violent events take place are white males when they've committed such atrocities. Sure. So there's a broader discussion. It's a really good point that you're bringing up, which is that when we see oftentimes a uh, brown or black suspect or a foreign suspect, we may be more likely to go to something like terrorism and ideology as an explanation. But when we see a white suspect, then we go to this mental illness. I think this comes down back to people's uh, stereotypes and racist biases that come in where they say, well, hey, in the same way that we don't think that a mentally healthy person would do this. I think there are a lot of people who think, well, we wouldn't think that a, a well-off young white man would, would do these sorts of things. It must be that there's something that went wrong in their psychology. When in actuality, young white men do these sorts of things, and they do them for ideological, moralistic reasons. Do you think that, that the way we label these, these incidents and the people who perpetrate them stands in the way of how America responds For example, after 9-11, people of the Muslim faith were profiled. Black people are profiled. White men who carry out these atrocities are not profiled or surveilled in the same way. We do have this problem where if you are going to call a brown suspect a terrorist, then we're going to get profiling, we're going to get restrictions on them. If we are going to look at 
white supremacist driven violence and label it as a mental health crisis, then we're going to stigmatize all the people who seek mental health services. And we're going to miss on preventing violence that's driven by white supremacy because we're not going to be looking for that. I've been speaking with Tage Rye, Assistant Professor of Management at UC San Diego's Ready School of Management. Professor Rye, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. At least two immigrant detainees have been held in punishing solitary confinement for about a week at the for-profit private facility where they're locked up in Bakersfield. The men and their attorneys say it's retaliation for supporting a peaceful labor strike. For the California Report, KQED's Farida Jabbala Romero has the story. Some people held at the Mesa Verde Detention Center have been refusing to clean dorms and bathrooms for $1 a day for more than two months, say immigrant advocates. And last week, about eight more detained workers joined the strike. Mohamed Musa, an immigrant detainee from Egypt, supports them. I call for humane treatment, and I stand up against the unfair treatment. It's like the slavery rate of $1 a day. Among other things, strikers are calling to be paid California's minimum wage of $15 an hour. Musa says he signed his name on a piece of paper declaring they were joining the strike and alerted staffers with the GEO Group, the prison company paid by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement to operate the facility. The next day, on June 29th, guards moved Musa to a cell used for what's officially known as administrative segregation. Detainees call it the hole. He's been kept since then in a small, windowless cell for 22 hours a day or longer, he says. It gives you anxiety, it gives you, um, raise your stress level, raise your, your depression level. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrible place to be at. It's like they dig a grave and throw you in. The cell is about 6 feet by 12 feet long, with a toilet, clogged sink, and a cot to sleep on, says Pedro Figueroa, a striker who was moved to solitary confinement on June 30th, a day after Musa. Guards push meals, and sometimes a phone, through a slot in the cell's metal door. I chose to not work anymore and and voice my opinion on that within my right, respectfully, and um, a lot of other individuals uh, felt the same. Detainees like Figueroa often volunteer to work cleaning dorms to help their families pay for phone calls and commissary items. Figueroa is a dad of four U.S. citizen kids and a former inmate firefighter who fought the Dixie Fire in 2020. 
He and Musa were placed in solitary confinement on charges of engaging in or inciting a demonstration and conduct that disrupts or interferes with the security or operation of the facility, according to geoforms viewed by KQED. This is what they're doing to retaliate against people that speak up. You know, this is what they're doing to intimidate us, which I am intimidated. A spokesman with GEO strongly rejected the allegations that the company is retaliating against the detainees. He repeatedly denied there's even a labor strike, arguing that the work program is voluntary. But the spokesman declined to say what demonstration Musa and Figueroa are charged with inciting. These private prison companies are profiting by the millions, up to the billions of dollars every year by using these voluntary work programs. Eunice Cho is an attorney with the ACLU National Prison Project. She says GEO and other private prison companies nationwide often use the $1 a day program to do the things they need to run immigration detention centers, like cleaning, laundry, and maintenance. Private prison companies have often used punishment to actually force people to perform this labor, doing things like uh, threatening and putting people into solitary confinement, denying food, This, of course, obviously is uh, unconstitutional punishment. That's because immigrant detainees also have freedom of speech through the First Amendment, says Cho. Now, courts in California and other states are deciding whether these practices constitute forced labor or violate minimum wage laws, and whether companies like GEO are accountable. A spokesperson for U.S. Senator Alex Padilla says the reports of potentially exploitative work at Mesa Verde are alarming, especially if detainees are facing retaliation for protesting the conditions and that the senator's office is working to gather additional information. ICE did not immediately return requests for comment. I'm Farida Javala Romero. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. This weekend in the arts, you have your pick from Southern Gothic Blues at the Casbah, a last chance to see improv hip-hop at the Old Globe, plus the Barrio Art Crawl, including a Frida Kahlo birthday celebration. Joining me now with all the details is KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start with the Barrio Art Crawl on Saturday. There's multiple new exhibitions opening up at Bread and Salt, but let's start at the former La Bodega Gallery in the heart of Barrio, Logan. Uh, tell us about what's on at Corazon del Barrio. Yeah, so Corazon del Barrio is the new name. Um, the space is now primarily an event venue, which is something that La Bodega Gallery also did really well, but they do have exhibitions from time to time. And this weekend, they're celebrating Frida Kahlo's birthday with Viva La Vida. This is an exhibition with all Frida-themed work. There's 50 local artists in it, and the artist list is that really great combination of some names that we do know and some that we don't. And I really love that about these big themed group shows. So at the opening, there'll also be music from Betty Bangs and other DJs. There's food from places around Barrio Logan and beer from Mujeres Brew House. There'll also be flower crowns and a Frida Kahlo lookalike contest. So if you want to dress up, you can enter that. That all kicks off on Saturday at five o'clock. Okay, so now tell us about what's on at Bread and Salt, multiple new art exhibitions, and even some live graffiti painting. 
Yes, so this is the cross-border graffiti duo known as Hem Crew, where Hem stands for Echo in Mexico, and they're opening an exhibition at the Athenaeum Art Center that's called Making Echoes with Lines. And part of the exhibition will be a live graffiti painting event that's going to happen during the Barrio Art Call on Saturday. And that Athenaeum Art Center is kind of tucked in the back of Bread and Salt, but it's a big open walkthrough space between the main gallery and best practice and the courtyard outside. And speaking of best practice, they are opening a two-person exhibition called ABCD that has work from Nathaniel Klein and Brody Albert. This is a lot of found object works and some video. I especially like one of their video projects um, in the exhibition. It's a series of scenes of color-sorted things, all things found at the dollar store. And in the main Bread and Salt Gallery is a solo exhibition from painter Melanie Taylor. This will feature works on paper as well as paintings. And I really love Melanie Taylor's natural landscapes. She paints trees and branches with so much movement. There's a lot of energy in those pieces. So yeah, most of these exhibitions and receptions are from 5 to 8 or so in the evening. But the Barrio Art Crawl actually kicks off at noon. And there are plenty of shops and open studios and food and music to find all day. And this thing happens every month. Wow. Now at the uh, Old Globe, it's closing weekend for Freestyle Love Supreme, which was created by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, Tell us about this. Right. So this is something, it was actually devised during rehearsal breaks for Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights. And it's basically an improv comedy and hip hop performance that it also went to Broadway in its own right and even got a Grammy nomination, I think in 2019. And in each show, audience members can give suggestions and the performers will incorporate those into the show. It it makes the progression between the songs and the movements unique. It's an otherwise narrative free script and no two shows will be the same, but there are just a few shows left at the Old Globe. So there's tonight at eight, Saturday at five and nine, and then Sunday at two and seven. And finally, some music. Uh, Dia Victoria performs at the Casba on Sunday. Tell us about her. Yeah, so Adia Victoria is known for her brand of Gothic blues, which is a style that's really cemented in the American South. Her voice is just incredible. It's powerful and nuanced, and sonically, she runs the gamut from folk to blues to indie, country, and soul. And she recently put out a full-length album called A Southern Gothic that was last fall, produced by T-Bone Burnett, um, with supporting appearances from Matt Berninger from The National, Margot Price, and Jason Isbell. And the album's about her complicated relationship with with the South as a Black woman. She lives in Tennessee, and she was also raised in the South. And she's recently just started releasing a few new singles, including this one called Ain't Killed Me Yet. That's 
Ain't Killed Me Yet by Adia Victoria. She performs at the Casbah Sunday at 8.30 p.m. For details on these and more arts events or to sign up for Julia's weekly KPBS arts newsletter, go to kpbs.org arts. I've been speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon Evans. Julia, thank you. Thank you, Jade. Have a good weekend. Now it's a heart.